often he uh, thinks about the urge to kill or about vacuuming, whatever it is. <laughs> Welcome to Art Fictions with me, Gillian Knipe, bringing you stories of art and the art of stories as myself and a guest artist discuss a piece of fiction and the artist's practice, exploring the ideas which govern both of these creative endeavours. Today, I'm thrilled to be speaking with the very talented Daniel Sturgis. Aside from his many other professional commitments, including Professor of Painting at the University of Arts and an extensive curatorial history, Daniel is also an accomplished abstract painter. He casts a wide net to capture an assortment of formal and everyday references, which he presents as pared-down geometric arrangements. Though straightforwardly simple, they are not. Patterns are off-kilter, shapes are peculiar, and little dots appear in unexpected places disrupting the seriousness of the work. They seem like a simultaneous compliance or acknowledgement of systems and rules, as well as a quietly unwavering refusal to comply. I hope you enjoy our conversation, and as always, many thanks for listening. Daniel Sturgis, welcome to Art Fictions today. It's very good to be here. We are going to talk today about the mezzanine and a second book, Room Temperature. So the mezzanine by Nicholson Baker describes a young man's lunch hour in minuscule detail, returning frequently to the astonishing incident of both his shoelaces breaking within days of one another. Do you think that sums up the book? Well, it it sums up a little bit of the book. (laughs) uh, and we can explain why that's true, but also perhaps it's, uh, it's not true as well. Absolutely. The second book is Room Temperature, also written by Nicholson Baker, and it explores the daydreaming of Mike when he sits down to feed his daughter Bug. He flips between his relationship with his mother and his boyhood habits to his connections with and observations of his wife Patty. There's so much else that goes on, obviously, but they're both something like Diary of a Nobody or The Journal of the Disappointed Man. I also thought they were rather like Virginia Woolf's A Mark on the Wall, which I discussed in the last episode with Francis Richardson. And perhaps as well, I don't know if you ever watched the Breaking Bad series. I don't think I've quite watched it, but I'm aware of it. So my favourite episode was when Walter White, who's the main character, he tries to capture a fly through the whole episode. There's lots of things we'll explore, which is what the book is really about. But just to start off with, perhaps you could tell us why you chose not only one, but two books, which is very cheeky. I chose two books, which I know I wasn't really meant to, but in a way, (laughs) um, there was a reason to that. And I suppose I really wanted to choose Room Temperature, the second book, which recounts 20 minutes of time when our protagonist is feeding his baby and sort of digressing and thinking about things. But I felt that to fully understand that book, one needed to realise where it had come from and realise how it was different to Nicholson Baker's first book, The Mezzanine. So that was the sort of the reason to put them together. Although they're both very short, they're hardly novels at all. One of the things I found quite challenging, I suppose, when you asked me to select a novel was I was thinking, well, what are the novels I read? And they tend to be quite long books, which one gets completely absorbed into, um, to do perhaps with their length or to do perhaps with the many characters within them. And to think of a smaller, shorter book that 
had that quality, I sort of st thought that these ones were perhaps true to a kind of richness of detail within them, which some of the longer books I was thinking about also have. So what would be some examples of some of these longer books? I read a lot of autobiographies and a lot of um, sort of non-fiction books all the time. But the novels that I tend to read are what I call kind of big novels. And I suppose they're like novels that might capture whole generations of people's thinking. So I was thinking automatically of people like John Updike, which intriguingly Nicholson Baker had written his third book about, a sort of love affair or a kind of critique of John Updike, or people like Paul Oster. I suppose big American novels. But then also works by people like Dickens or Great Expectations and some of those very long, detailed, observed works that you kind of get completely drawn into. What do you think it is with American novels then or American writers? I don't think it's just to do with American writers, that there is a position that America had a certain glamour or a certain otherness than sort of rather drab England did in the, in the rain in London in the 1970s and 80s. <laughs> okay, I wasn't here then, so I just have to believe you. <laughs> I thought that it's worth going over a couple of the details that are in one or both of the books. I don't know if you had any call out pieces, but I think it's hard to understand the books unless you actually quote from them. I would say just broadly, the mezzanine, which had me much more hooked than its cousin, room temperature, that went through lots of ideas about design, you know, the replacement of the paper straw with the plastic straw and the great innovation of the bendy straw. And now we're in a different time. Back to the paper straw. Were there any standout parts that you thought were worth quoting? In my mind, what's sort of happening within that book, which is a very funny book, but you have Howie, the protagonist in it, observing in great detail all these small innovations and changes in sort of mass culture or in the world around him. And, you know, I very much like the paper towels in the washroom, noticing how the paper towels were once luxurious and then got smaller and then hand blowers were put into the washrooms to supposedly um, save time, but actually that led to no staff going into the washrooms and you know, and the sort of uh, richness of thinking through all these details and sort of the observation of mass culture, I think is amazing. But also, I suppose the kind of the bigger story within the mezzanine is this journey that he takes on an escalator, which connects the mezzanine where he works to the outside world. And the idea of the mezzanine being a place perhaps in between places, but also the escalator being a device on which you travel, but in the way that you travel on it seems to speak a lot as well. So that you've got Nicholson Baker thinking through, well, how do we move on an escalator? Do you stand still in a zombified state or do you use it as a machine to increase your productivity? And what were the decisions by the people who designed the escalator? Did they want us all to be zombies or did they want us to be more productive? And this strange sort of absurd, really, over-reasoning of things is strangely attractive. He does talk about going from wooden floors to carpeted floors and going from stairs to the escalator. So there's this shift, if you like, from a very noisy world and a very clunky world to a world that we glide through, which I thought got us to room temperature, actually. In fact, in room temperature, the second book, and I thought that was a real gliding sort of novel. It had a very different speed. 
but just staying with the first novel for a moment, The Mezzanine, I wanted to read out a couple of things to be able to depict, you know, exactly what we're talking about. So, for instance, he has a list of, I think it's eight major advances in his life. And one of them was the way he could apply deodorant. So he says, the fifth major advance was my discovery of a way to apply deodorant in the morning while fully dressed, an incident I will describe in more detail later on. And when you read it, besides the fact that you're laughing and thinking, please don't tell me more about this later on, he does. He does tell us. And he talks about the introduction of plastic straws and says, in this way, the quality of life through nobody's fault went down an eighth of a notch. Okay, so another favourite of mine was with regards to the stapler. Sadly, the tone arm stylistic progress has slowed because all the buyers who would appreciate an up-to-date Soviet realism in the design are buying CD players. Its inspiration era is over, which I thought was brilliant. In fact, he's clearly quite knowledgeable about different times of design. For instance, the difficulty of now that we're in an age of post-it notes, which can I just show you, as you can see... Oh, you've got loads of post-it notes. <laughs> ...are all through the books that you gave me to read. They have made the massive black tape dispensers seem even more grandiose and by the mayor and tragically defunct. And so he's talking about that Bidermeda era, I'm probably not pronouncing it correctly, which was a time in Central Europe in the mid 19th century where there was a growing middle class and appreciation of the arts. So he's coming from, I suppose, what you think of as a highbrow knowledge and honing it into these everyday objects and how these objects define times in our lives and how these objects define literally the way we move around in the world. I think that's right. I mean, I think that the, you know, the turn of sort of phrases that he uses and the reflections he has are rich with association. And there are ways that he describes things which you think you will never quite forget, I always think, that you never quite see something as innocently as you had before because of the associations that he brings to it. He talks about drying his hands on the paper towel with um, moving his fingers in a bribe me, bribe me sort of way. Um, which is a lovely sort of uh, um, sort of coming together of how you might manipulate your hands on a paper towel. And it opens something up. It opens up the trivial mundanity of what surrounds us in a very poetic way. And I suppose some of that poetry in it, which is the things that I like, there's a sort of pleasure in these observations, which are often of mundane things. It sort of runs against that idea that we're sort of ambivalent to mass culture. It's sort of showing a sort of love of mass culture and showing a sort of beauty behind it, really. Uh, and a beauty in a way which doesn't really differentiate so much between the high and the low, between the styrofoam cup or the um, Debussy piece of music. And you're right. I think there's a certain, almost like an elegance of the everyday but then in another way, you know how mindfulness is really popular. I was thinking about that, you know, staying in the present and being mindful of everything you're doing. And it sort of takes that idea to the point of absurd. Yeah, it is a bit mad because the associations go too far, which also ties in really with his idea of uh, lists, because really the mezzanine is sort of like a novel of lists. And I guess another reason I kind of like it is you sort of think, 
can a novel just be a load of lists? I mean, that doesn't seem quite right, um, but it seems to question the form of a novel, which is intriguing. And I think the other thing which you, you touched on just a little bit ago was about the speed of it. I was thinking about the speed that you move on the escalator or you go up the escalator in what sort of mood. And that sort of runs through the text as well, strangely. Some bits you read quickly and some you read slow. But also, of course, within the text, you've got these huge footnotes, which seem um, ludicrous because half the page is footnote and half the page is written text. And you don't really know the hierarchy. Uh, should I be reading all the top bits first or then I'm going to miss this bit of the footnote? So you get a bit confused as you're reading it about how you should be reading it. So there seems to be a very purposeful disorientation going on there which is like the disorientation, perhaps, that you're kind of experiencing with all this mass cultural world and also of associations, which may be from high culture or from wherever. So those digressions, you're right, they are all in the footnotes. And I first came across that reading Flann O'Brien's The Third Policeman. And it does show us this idea of all these side issues or digressions being just as important as everything else that happens or informing everything else that happens. Uh, yes, I think that's right. So nothing's less important. And in a way, it's a novel which is built on these small narratives, these small discussions, these small observations. So I suppose the story, which is very inconsequential story of a lunch hour and going to buy some shoelaces after this extraordinary fact that they've broken so recently after each other is really no story at all but the story is all these tiny stories and it's those tiny stories that make up the whole and none of them are more important than the other and they don't really relate that much I mean they only relate through how is imagination Almost like without these sorts of stories, we wouldn't have Rowan Atkinson playing Mr. Bean because he doesn't accomplish anything. But speaking of the, the sort of edge of madness, and as you say, it is like a book of lists, but it is also a book in which he makes lists. And one of the lists he makes is the frequency of things that he thinks about on an annual basis. And 33 times per annum on his frequency of thoughts table, he has friends, don't have any. And in another part of the book, I think it's when he's actually tying up his shoelace that breaks and Dave, Sue and Steve go off to lunch and say, you know, see you later. And he calls them cheerful assholes because he's so fixated with his silly little details. And then he just throws in there, I think it was about four or five, at that age, I once stabbed my best friend Fred with a pair of pinking shears in the base of the neck, enraged because he had been given the comprehensive 64 crayon Crayola box and would not let me look to see how Crayola had stabilised the built-in crayon sharpener under the tears of crayons. <laughs> so, I mean, that's horrible because he really could have damaged Fred quite badly. It also made me think of how trying to just see exactly what's precisely before you can help you in a moment that's too traumatic, also that echoes or replicates some other trauma that you've suffered. Well, there may be displacement, I suppose, yeah. within it. I mean, it's interesting that he begins the lists at the end, how often he uh, thinks about the urge to kill or about vacuuming, whatever it is. <laughs> 
he began thinking of all of those when thinking about Penguin Classic books. And in one of the introductions of the Penguin Classic book, it said, as you've often thought. And then he suddenly began thinking, well, how often have I thought this? And am I actually thinking thinking <laughs> often about <laughs> And the absurdity of the reasoning, I suppose. And it's pushing something to an extreme. It's kind of the, um, the desire to, to push something to beyond where you're comfortable. And I suppose that's one of the things that I also quite like about it. So there's an element within both the books, but perhaps more so in the second book, which I think is also to do with sort of inappropriateness. You suddenly think, well, this is just completely inappropriate to be talking about using the toilet and various things like that. And there becomes an inappropriateness with the whole sort of digression but it's that strange sort of enjoyment within that. And I suppose I'm quite interested in when things seem inappropriate or where that boundary is, because often that's really is something which is built culturally about what things should be talked about and what things shouldn't be talked about. The other reason I particularly like the second book is to do with the reflection on colour, actually, when they're talking about the Pontormo colours and the broken light, which has the, um, the colour from a painting in it. But even him thinking about that, he feels it just shows his own inadequacy about his knowledge about art and design and, and colour, because he feels that his wife is much more knowledgeable about this. And in fact, will be um, looking at his observations of it with a sense of sort of pity, really. Yeah. The other thing about the second book, Room Temperature, I thought was that it was a lot more believable because even though the first one was funny, there were parts where you weren't quite sure whether this was real or not. So for instance, in one part, he says Abe is a liar because he's asking about the shoelace problem. And Abe says, with regards to his own shoelaces, oh, I have them flown in, UPS blue, an Indian guy in Texas makes them for me. He blends alpaca with some of the finer tweeds. Then he sprays it with Krylon. Nice, I said. The secret to working for Abe was realising that nothing he said outside of company business was serious or true. Take it easy. That's what Abe says. Take it easy. To a guy, Howie, who, you know, he can't take it easy. But it does make you think, because it's so ridiculous what Abe says. I mean, it's surely not true that he wears a different pair of shoelaces every day and has them flown in. And then the girlfriend is almost too perfect because they share this adoration of sweeping housework. So then does the narrator actually exist? Whereas in room temperature, obviously he's come down to earth. He's no longer on the mezzanine and he's arrived somewhere. And the whole thing felt a lot more grounded. The whole thing felt like it was somewhere and somewhere believable. Whereas in the mezzanine, you know, he's making all these connections. He's talking about clothing ties and the tying of shoelaces and familial ties and connects ties with his father. And for me, I read it as being in your 20s when you're not quite an adult, but you've been given that label. But it's a bit of a manic up and down time. And then having a child kind of grounds you in room temperature. So we're in a room now, you know, we're not in an in-between place. Yeah, I think that, I mean, obviously there are similarities, but I think that they are different, the books. For me, I prefer room temperature, not because it's more believable, because in a way it's not really, but because the visual imagery, I suppose, within it is truer. I love the idea of them making this mobile out of finding little slips in a jacket. That idea I find very, very appealing. And also I love the other bit at the end of that book where he's listening to his wife write her 
diary and listening for the comma and notice this small little intervention in the text. And then he begins thinking about the comma through music and gasping for breath. <laughs> and again, it's just a slightly tangential way that you might be thinking about something. And I suppose it's not free association at all. It's a sort of tangential type of association. It's tangents and taking things to extremes. And I suppose those are qualities which I think have a beauty to them, actually. Yeah, I thought the part where he talks about his wife, because he tries to read her diary. She keeps a diary of their child, who's called Bug, <laughs> <laughs> who he sometimes refers to as the Bug. And he tries to I spy on what she's written and can't understand her handwriting. So he then takes to appreciating the sounds of her writing and that shift of her hand across the page. And I thought that was so beautiful. And he seemed to think that that evoked so much more tenderness than anything she could have written. That's right. And I'd say that that idea of the sound of writing, well, certainly I hadn't really thought about that before. So it's sort of like a strange gift that you now suddenly think, oh, this, the sound of the writing, and that may have particular resonance or whatever as well, which is really nice. Painting is really an inadequate language to be saying many things. There's so much about observations and the observations of the small details which are very very much part of an artist's practice and I wanted to shift to talking about your work in that context because in the same way that Howie and Mike are recognizing these finer details I think there's an element of your work that's also loaded with hints and symbols and shapes and patterns and they're recognizable in our everyday lives but we would all probably differ from what we recognise. So if I take your most recent paintings that have a checkerboard, one person might recognise that as a checkerboard, be it for drafts or for chess. Somebody else might see it as a software holding screen, you know, in a design package. They also look like racing flags and then they're quite disjointed or slightly off kilter. So then we get that idea of fabric that's folded where the pattern reappears and the part that's folded in we can't see or overlays of paper. So what seems fairly straightforward becomes quite complex and mysterious. So can you talk a bit about your most recent work? Yes, I think that what you're saying is interesting because I think that the use of um, motifs within the paintings, whether they be checks or whether they be circles or areas of particular colour, obviously different people have different associations. And one of the things that I very much hope that I kind of achieve is to try and create something where you leave it open as to what those associations are. You never try and close it down. So you don't think, oh, well, that's obviously this. That's clearly a checkerboard or that's clearly the Photoshop holding pattern. So you leave things just in this slightly open and ambiguous state so that the use of particular motifs has a slight instability to it. I mean, the most recent paintings I've been making, uh, or the one, last ones that I exhibited in Amsterdam from a series which is called We Work Together. And they are really, I suppose, about codependency and that they were paintings that work together, in a sense, through a type of formalism with different things relating to different things within the whole paintings and they had to work together. But then also that they related to paintings which were elsewhere within the gallery space 
And then also that the actual motif from the painting had a vague echo, just a very, very slight echo of the schematic drawing of Vitruvian Man by um, Leonardo. So that there was an idea of a sort of humanism within it as well. So you had all these different things running together, but none of them hopefully sort of overpowering the other so that there is an openness. And I suppose the other element within that work is that idea that they look very sort of clean and graphic and bold and sort of full frontal and perhaps almost sort of machine made, but then have been made by hand in a very slow sort of way, which when you look at the paintings in real life, as opposed to on a screen, you see they have all been made by hand and they must have taken ages. And why on earth would you do something like that? There must be a quicker way to do it. And there's that kind of push against the expectation of what one might expect. And I quite like that tension. It goes back to what I was saying about inappropriateness, that it doesn't necessarily feel like the most appropriate way necessarily to be making the painting. Earlier on, when I was making sort of large flower paintings, I would be mixing a lot of sort of silkscreen medium into the paint to help the paint sort of move like a silkscreen. And they had a sort of silkscreen feel to them. And then you think, well, that is ridiculous, mixing silkscreen medium into the painting and then deciding to paint it all with brushes. But it's that sort of association of, of the way that something's made and the way that something's made, being able to say something meaningful is kind of interesting. Just on the work that you had at We Work Together, which was at PS Gallery in Amsterdam, you had three paintings. One was, I'm going to refer to it as a double, which had a particular image on the left and a particular image on the right. And then there were two singles and the two singles were like call outs or close up details of the left and right segments of the double painting. Is there something different in the smaller paintings or are they literal repeats of what is in the larger painting? They're, in a sense, it's all about equivalence, I suppose. They're not literally the same. In fact, they're very different. They're equivalent. Uh, so the colours are identical, but the sizes of various squares and checks are different and the angles are slightly different. And obviously the sizes of the inserts in the bigger painting are different. But you sort of think, ah, oh, well... They're obviously related. I mean, they get on with each other. And I suppose it's that sort of relationship of things being similar, but not quite the same, things being accepting of, of those sorts of differences, which I quite like. The way in the big painting where you've got these two inserts of circles with squares on them in a sort of sea of blue and white checks is a very sort of bold and electrifying painting. It's got a lot of um, optical punch to it, if you like. And then when you see the other two on the wall, they seem, in a sense, more humble sort of paintings, that they have a fragility to them, which is different. So there's also a sort of mood within the different work that is connected and then the, I suppose the third thing to say is that because there is this very strong relationship between all these paintings within the installation that suddenly you're in the middle of it all you're in this discussion that these paintings are having between each other about how similar they are or how not similar they are and you are somehow a third party in that I suppose it's around that idea of building a series of work which is not only speaking to each other but which is in dialogue with each other within a room and it's sort of activating a space. Absolutely because it's almost like when you walk into the space that you're interrupting the paintings. They're having a little conversation that was going on and you've walked in and interrupted it so they have to stay stum until you've left the room. 
The other thing about them is that, you know, this is a really crass dumbing down of what, what is going on on the canvas. So I'm apologising in advance. But it's as if there's an all-over checkerboard pattern, then a smaller checkerboard pattern, and then a circle on top of that, and then an inset checkerboard pattern on top of that, like they're stacked up. Is that the way that they're put together? You're right to notice that the sort of stacking of one thing being on top of the next, on top of the next. And I suppose what I'd say is that there are small drawings which sort of begin the process where I'm working everything out. And they're made not as a stack, but they're, you know, they're drawn and then each sort of area is worked out individually. But I like that idea that there's just a dumbness in putting one thing in front of another thing in front of another thing. And then there's a spatial element within that, which is to do with if you've got these two or three or four levels within the painting, well, which one is the one that's sort of dominating or which one isn't dominating? And there's a sort of play there, which is optical, but I think it's also a slight kind of psychological play about where these planes are. They're quite different, though, than your previous paintings you referred to the flower series there's also the boulder series where you have things next to one another as opposed to things on top of one another yeah I think that's sort of right that with the boulder series which were these paintings with big gray forms which sort of jostled next to each other and had other forms placed on them they very much felt that they were on one plane and I suppose I'm interested now to thinking about how one can still create a real sense of flatness uh, partly because flatness is something that is inherent within paintings I mean they are flat but also within discourses in modernism and everything flatness is an interesting conceit I suppose when thinking about elements of postmodernism, which perhaps goes back to the book a little bit, where you've got all this talk about surface and the surface of the world around you, that there's no depth or meaning behind it. Well, actually, I think Nicholson Baker shows that there is a depth and meaning behind it, and in fact, a beauty behind it. And I suppose within the sort of use of flatness within the paintings that I'm, I'm working on at the moment, I'm trying to create this sense of depth, but still, in a sense, it's a micro depth. You recognise that these are planes, but they're very close together. Yeah, I was having a discussion with another painter recently and we were talking about the thinness of the space on the canvas. I do think of this more recent series as having that very thin space, as in it does allude to a space, but it's not what we would think of as three-dimensional space. It's not three-dimensional space and it's not a sort of modernist flat space. I think there's an element which is digital within it, but yet they're made in this sort of very handmade way. I think there's an element which is to do with a kind of casualness of things just being on top of each other, which is not necessarily windows on a computer screen, but just bits of paper on the table. You know, it's the same sort of thing. But you sort of want to project into thinking, well, what that space is. And when I go back to that idea of things being open, that you don't want it to close down. But you also want to know that this is made exactly with the perfection or the level of care that it's needed. So that within the checks, there's often three or four different whites, which you don't notice in a photograph necessarily, but when you see it in real life, you think, oh, look, these are different whites, or these are different reds, or the level of detail there, which takes time to see, I guess. And you once said, if it's simply an abstract painting, then I failed. You actually said that to me yesterday on the phone. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's true. I mean, I do think that if it's simply an abstract painting, I fail because it, and by that I mean that if it feels 
um, that you know it, I suppose, that it feels familiar, it's failed. I mean, I think the terms abstract and figurative uh, are a little bit redundant, I suppose. I see that my paintings working very much within a language of painting or a tradition of painting. And I do think that painting has a lot of past behind it. And one therefore needs to be pretty careful about not only recognising that past, but also about not just uh, regurgitating it. So if something feels like it's just being like an abstract painting, then it feels like, well, it doesn't have any meaning beyond that. It doesn't have any meaning beyond, you know, being beautiful or decorative or whatever it is. And I'm interested in a sense to be not necessarily hiding, but having within the paintings slightly more, not necessarily profound, but observations about the contemporary which resonate, I suppose. But yet, I also sort of feel that painting is really an inadequate language to be saying many things. And that idea of painting not being quite adequate enough to articulate what you're saying or want to say is very appealing and that idea of painting being slightly inadequate an idea which in a sense perhaps dates more or less from the same date as the mezzanine book which I read when I was a student but also this idea of painting being inadequate was something that was talked about a lot in the late 80s when there was a big return to figurative painting and a big return to neo-expressionism. And uh, in an essay or article by Benjamin Buckler with Gerhard Richter, they talked about painting being inadequate. But its inadequacy, in a sense, was to do with the age that we're living in now, rather than the paintings themselves. And I quite like the idea that you know, painting has this history of an ability to talk about grand subjects, but is it able still to do that? What I hope is that, in a way, it's not quite able to do it, but it can still make it sort of talk about elements to do with hierarchies or power structures within them or the role of a sort of handmaid in the machine world, so that there's elements of humanism, I guess, within this language. So why is it, do you think, that the problem is not so much painting, but the way that painting is in the world now? So what is it that makes it particularly inadequate now? Well, the argument at that moment in the 80s was that painting as a, a language to speak about, you know, the contemporary world, it was unable to do so. It had removed so many voices from itself. So how could it respond to feminism? How could it respond to the war in Vietnam? How could it respond to the horrors of the Holocaust? All of those sorts of questions. Now, of course, I think painting absolutely can do all of those things, but it does so now knowing that it's not necessarily the most politically engaged medium there is. But yet it still has the ability to change the way that people see things within the contemporary. I can't remember the exact words that you said, but when you were talking just then, I was thinking, I don't know what you think of this, but perhaps it more gauges the temperature, funnily enough, going back to the book room temperature. It gauges a sense of how things are or where things are at. Yeah, I mean, I think that's right. I mean, I think that's a nice idea about sort of gauging the temperature. I think it's through association that the meaning of paintings becomes sort of visible. One of its appeals is that it's an art form which tends to be singular, that it tends to be made by one person at a time, and it's an art form that has this history to it, and it's somehow the coming together of that history, the one person at the time, 
and the contemporary, where it's a sort of triangulation of those three things. I think that negotiation has an ability to be meaningful, but, but doesn't reflect because it's also creating a kind of vision of the now of a particular environment or a particular set of thinking at a particular moment. So maybe temperature is a nice way to think about it. Beyond the individual or beyond the one person who's creating the work, there are also extensions of that. For instance, this podcast where I am interested in talking to people who I would say I would have a connection with when I look at their work in the same way that you have created quite a number of significant curatorial projects as a way of extending your thinking about your own work. And of course, you're also professor in painting at the University of Arts London. But I wanted to come to some of your other influences and artists that you particularly admire. And I did ask you for this ahead of time. And you sent me a list of Peter Kinley, Prunella Clough, who I think is magnificent. And I don't know how she's not more well known. Yeah, she should be more well-known. There needs to be a proper show of her. Gosh, that would be amazing. Uh, Patrick Caulfield, Ian Hamilton, Finlay, and Pontormo, or Jacopo of Pontormo. And you also mentioned Cabusia, the architect, and Borromini, another architect. But I wanted to come to one of the people you mentioned who I thought was fascinating, which is Barney Bubbles. And he was a big graphic designer in the 70s. And his big thing was record sleeves laden with symbols and riddles. And I did a quick scan on his record cover designs and they're absolutely magnificent and they seem to connect really nicely with the book in terms of design you know like Hawkwind's series of record covers where you get all that text design which looks like big bang 20th century fox the mustang the studio baker hawk you know it's really cool tell me what it is about him that you're really interested in uh, so Barney Bubbles, as you say, was a, a graphic designer and there's a huge amount of playfulness within what he's doing. And I suppose that's what really appeals to me. There's an element where he's sort of cartoonizing paintings like the Kandinsky painting for the Damned second album. There's a sort of a use of the little symbols that you might have within printing within the main design. There's a play of the hierarchies, I guess. So all of that I very much like. In 2013, I curated a little show which was called Red, White and Blue at Chelsea Space, which Michael Bracewell wrote the catalogue essay for, which was sort of about painting, but not just painting, but sort of about pop graphics, I guess. And we had quite a few Barney Bubbles works in that. And of course, the other thing is the relationship of painting to graphic design is like one of those slightly awkward relationships. But if one looks back at the history of abstraction and to the early avant-garde, there was no worry at all about the fact that the Sonia Delany could turn up on a scarf or the Malevich could be a teacup. It's a new sort of nervousness that we have, or it's a nervousness since the 50s and 60s. I have noted quite a turnaround in that very, very recently. I mean, it's awful 
a lot of people have lost their jobs and artists, as you well know, have such precarious sources of income as it is. So people have been grappling to generate some sort of income. And for instance, Matthew Burroughs is doing the Artist Support Pledge. So that's got artists, even artists that are in galleries are shifting out of their safe space and selling smaller works and works on paper online. But I've also noticed, hurrah at last, I say, artists that are putting interpretations of paintings not actual paintings on t-shirts and there's an artist Emma Hart who's creating these amazing ceramics as part of her Christmas. I always think of Sonia Delaney because that was such a brilliant exhibition at the Tate and you could see how she was doing costume design and she was doing theatre design and then when you scratch a bit further absolutely you see that right back to Malevich they were doing exactly the same thing. Picasso did a lot of design as well. So yeah, it is a tricky connection. Strange hierarchy. And it goes back to that question of appropriateness, perhaps, or, you know, where are the boundaries of these things? And when is a painting a painting? And when is it graphic design? And, you know, and what's wrong with that anyway? And it's that sort of thinking, which I kind of enjoy. So that would be the reason to think, I suppose, around Barney Bubbles, and also because he's under-recognised, you know, he should have a big exhibition at the Design Museum. Why hasn't that happened? And I think the play within his work, I see a, quite a big connection with, with the play within early Jeremy Moon paintings. There's a similar sort of idea that playfulness and humour, really, is uh, a valid language. Yeah, Jeremy Moon's certainly created some brilliant works. And so can you talk a bit about Borromini, the architect? The reason I'm interested in Borromini and in that sort of architecture is, again, to do with that idea of elements of different languages being put together in different ways. So that you have a kind of inherited language, a language of the high Renaissance, being used by him, but in a playful way. He sort of creates elements too big or juxtaposes different architectural elements in ways which an older order would have felt to be inappropriate. A lot of his doors and windows, he creates these strange ears so that within the moulding, they begin to look almost like heads or faces. Again, there's a sort of cartoon-like anthropomorphism within it where you think, well, am I really meant to be seeing this face? It's meant to be sort of classical. But yet he's using a language which has been inherited in a different way. And I suppose that's one of the things that I slightly feel within respect to the language of modernist painting is that, in a sense, the language of modernist painting has already been written and painters now have all turned up a bit late to the party and we've inherited something. So what are you going to do with that inheritance? And somehow, by looking at that historical moment in the 1600s and 1650s, where those early Baroque architects were playing with the language that they'd inherited, there are certain clues. And they're doing it in one sense to amuse, but also in a sense because it speaks of that age. And that's when I said, well, if I just make an abstract painting, then in a sense I failed. Well, to me, it's because an abstract painting is from a different age. You can't imagine we're all in New York in the 1950s anymore or in Russia in 1914 anymore or in Belsize Park in, you know, 1930. I mean, it's ridiculous. And that means that you can't be using those forms anymore. I'd love to talk about all the rest with you, but we need to finish up. I'd like to know where we can see your work coming up soon. Yes, got a few things happening at the moment. So 
during this lockdown, in fact, two exhibitions which I had thought were going to be happening in November got delayed, and I guess will be happening in the spring. So one is an exhibition which is called The Science of Painting, and it's an exhibition which I'm doing with the artist Dan Walsh, the American painter. And what we've done is we've made a series of paintings on paper. He's made a series of 10 and I've made a series of 10 and we've made them on the same size paper and same make of paper, responded to the same titles. So that's coming up at Luca Tomasi Gallery sometime in the spring. And then also sometime in the spring, I'm doing a show at uh, Martina Cicelli's Ram Space in Camden Town, which I'm very delighted to be doing. And she always puts an artist based in London with another artist based in Germany. And so that's a two-person exhibition with someone called Sheila Katami, whose work I don't know, but looks really interesting. So we're not quite sure when that will happen, but again, it will be soon. Okay, fantastic. Actually, I want to ask you one more question, which is, Daniel Sturgis, what are you reading now? Oh, what am I reading? I'm reading a few things at the moment. I tend to have quite a lot of books sort of around. So one thing I'm reading is the painter Richard Roth um, has written a book called No Lab. So Richard Roth, who's a formalist painter who's working now, has makes very beautiful sort of box-like paintings. He had a show at Rocket Gallery quite a few years ago, and that's where I first met him. But he's written a sort of thriller set in an art school called No Lab. And I'm also reading a biography of Frank O'Hara by Brad Gooch called City Poet. Daniel, thank you so much for your time today. You've been really generous. Thanks for being on Art Fictions. It's a pleasure. Thank you to this week's guest and to all the artists who continue to inspire this podcast. And thank you for listening to Art Fictions with me, Gillian Knight. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe, please review. And of course, you're welcome to get in touch with me directly if you'd like more information via my Instagram, artfictions2020, or my website, gilliannight.co.uk. Across the you'll find images of the artist's work as well as any relevant links we mentioned today. Many thanks to Griffin Knight for his original music composition and performance. Happy reading and art viewing till next time. So I think I'll go back and do some painting and um, yeah, there's always work to do in the studio. That's one of the nice things. Have you been teaching online or? There's been a bit of teaching. I was doing that this morning, teaching online doing the dissertations today which was which I always like but uh, it's easier doing that than with the studio work